0: Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. How's it? How's everybody doing? It's good to be up here again. It's good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, last Friday, August the 14th, my wife had her baby, or our baby. So we're excited about that. Baby came in. So he was born on August 14th at 8.14 in the morning, and he weighed in at 7 pounds and 14 ounces. All about the 14s. Uh, so we're excited about that. He gave us a couple of false starts in there. There's a couple times where we thought he was coming, and then he decided to stop. And uh, a couple days later, we broke, uh, they broke Debbie's water, and now he's here. We've got Isaiah Gray, and we are very excited. Uh, his brothers are very excited, and our house is full of excitement. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm getting all kinds of sleep, so much. My wife is sleeping all the time. We get the greatest rest in the world. So, pray for us. By the way, that was sarcasm. If you didn't catch that, there's not a lot going on. So, please pray for us. Um, but no, it's a blessing, it's a good thing. All right. So, those of you who don't know me, my name is Andy. I'm the campus pastor of our Allegheny North campus. And uh, to we, as you know, if you've, if you've been coming for a little while, uh, you'll know that we've been in Romans chapter 8 together. And I really hope that you've been enjoying this series throughout the summer and experiencing all the riches and the, just the beauty of Romans 8 and what all it has to offer for the Christian life. And last week we took a short little break. Um, to hear from Pastor Mike, he, he had some things on his heart that he really needed to share. It was really a timely message, a very important message, um, and I really hope that you had a chance to hear it. If you weren't here last week, please go online, go on the app. If you're, if you're subscribed to our podcast, go listen to uh, that sermon last week. I think it's very timely, um, and it's a very helpful message for us in our crazy world times that we are currently living in. But, this week, we're back in Romans chapter 8, and my text tonight is Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. But I will also be uh, reading the two verses that Pastor Mike Wooder preached on last week. I'm not going um, to get into them as much as the text I had, but I would like to read them for uh, the sake of context. So, if you will, turn with me in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30, and we will get started. Likewise... The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's our text. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called; and those whom He called, He also justified; and those whom He justified, He also glorified. So the, the our, our text this evening it, it begins with these three words. And we know. Paul is beginning, uh, uh, the, it begins by letting us know that there's something that we can know about. What, what's about to be said here is absolute. It is something that we can take to the bank. There's solidarity here. If there's nothing else, we can know this For sure. And this kind of reaches back uh, to uh, verse 26, where it says, you know, there are some things that we don't know. For example, we, we don't always know how we ought to pray like we should. So the Holy Spirit helps us. But in spite of that, there are things that we can know and know for certain. And that is what Paul is getting at here. So Paul begins, and we know this is absolute for those who love God. All things work together for good. Now, before I go any further, I want to make sure that we, before I unpack all things work together for good, I need to demolish some marketable cheesiness that has taken place um, in, in the church with that, verse. I'm sure you guys have heard it before and you've probably seen it on mugs and plates and Thomas Kincaid paintings and um, a host of other things. And in the well-meaning friend who's trying to comfort uh, somebody who's hurting with those words, all things work together for good. For us to truly understand that the first thing we must do is contextualize that phrase. Who is Paul writing this to? Who is he addressing? Who is the recipient of that promise? It's for those who love God. And, and, and to, for somebody, it's for those who love God, and, and because not all things work together for good for those who hate God. And when I say those who hate God, I'm talking about anyone who refuses to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't want anything to do with Jesus, you don't want, to know, you don't want anything to do with, with repentance or any of that, and you would just rather God kind of stay out of your business, then you stand opposed to him. And so this text does not apply to you if you are that person. It is for those who love God. Now before I go any further, I want to make sure you know something. If you are here tonight and that's you, you don't really want God involved in your life. You don't want um, that whole repentance thing and the gospel thing. If that's not like your thing and if that's you, you need to know something. The God that we serve loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners and he puts out an invitation to anyone, anyone, anyone. Anyone, anywhere who would come to him and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, he will be faithful to save you. That goes out to anyone. And I don't care what your background is. It doesn't matter how many bad things you think you've done. If you come to the Lord Jesus in repentance, he will forgive you. He is faithful to then give you his Holy Spirit and begin to make you into a new creation. We serve a good and gracious God. And and if you want, (laughs) <laughs> and if you want all things to work together for good in your life, then come to Jesus. Now I realize that that sounded like a sales pitch. Um, and it may so- sound that way. And who wouldn't take that offer, right? Who wouldn't take the offer? You know, if you want everything to work out together for good in your life, come to Jesus. But wait, there, there, there is some more because we need to unpack what that means. Because most of the time when people say that, they don't really understand what it means, that, that, what, what that good is that is being worked out. And we're going to unpack that and look at that. Um, we're going we're to dig into that a bit more. But before we do that, we need to make sure that we have a good understanding as to what it is to mean to love God, because that's who this is addressed to, right? So what does it mean to love God? Do you love God? And if you're not sure what that looks like, Jesus tells us that if you love him, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to follow him, then Luke chapter 14 tells us that we need to count the cost to count the cost, because to be a disciple of Jesus is, is not a joke. We're, we're not, this isn't a, candy, a cotton candy parade. This is something, this is a serious thing. There are, are pastors all over the world that are suffering persecution because of their faith. This isn't just something that you just sign up to do. You need to pay attention. Count the cost. What's this going to take? And Jesus tells us that in Luke chapter 9 when he says, Listen, daily you will need to pick up your cross and follow me. Is that something that you are willing to do to pick up your cross, to follow him to Calvary and die? Now, that may mean your physical life, but Jesus says to daily lay down your life. So I don't think he's talking about necessarily in this particular text that you are going to die every day um, and then come back to life. The point is, is that you are denying yourself, your passions, your desires for the sake of knowing Jesus. Jesus. And Paul says that those who follow Jesus, who are willing to die, all things are going to work out together for good. That sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? What does that mean? If if we are actually going uh, to, if we're actually being called to die as followers of Jesus, how is it that these things can work out together for good? Well, it, that inspirational quote seems to kind of, be going away, right? Because, I mean, now that we know that to be a Christian is a call to die, it's what's working out together for good. Well, that is still an inspirational quote, but only to those who love God. Because there's nothing more in all of the world that we would rather do as Christians, as people who love God, people who treasure Christ above anything else. There's nothing more that we would rather do than to pick up our cross and die next to our King. And so if, you're a, if you call yourself a Christian, that means that you are willing to yield control and the control of those, and, and, and you're, you're, you're willing to let go of your need to control your life and the life of those around you because you belong to Jesus. You've denied yourself. Your passions, your desires are gone. And Paul continues, and we are going to come back to this because there's a lot more to unpack, but we're going to get through verse 28, and then I've got some observations we want to look at. So Paul continues, we we know that we know for certain that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now for those who are called is the same, uh, for those who are called and those who love God, they're one and the same person. They're they're talking about the same people. If you you love God, you've already been called by God and then God finishes out, I'm sorry, then Paul finishes out verse 28 by saying, according to his purpose. Purpose. Now, there are, there are two things in verse 28 that, I, that that we're going to look at these two observations. The one is that there is indeed an ultimate good for the people of God. And there is a purpose that's uh, underlining that, that's kind of motivating that. And we're going to get to that at the end. But let's look at this ultimate good that's in store for the Christian. Now, as I mentioned before, the observation is sometimes and often grossly Taken out of context to mean that God will give you whatever you want. And we all know how that goes. I mean, if, you have a, if you're a parent, you know that if you were to give your kid everything that they ever wanted, they'd wind up overstimulated, sick, and if, you're anything, if they're anything like my boys, probably dead. I can't tell you how many times I've pulled my kids away from the street or, or stopped them from jumping headfirst down a stairway, which, by the way, my, now my middle child did and had a huge head injury, that was horrifying. So much blood out of, a, out of a head injury. And it looks way worse than what it was. I'm holding my kid. It's, it's, anyway, the point is, is that if we gave our kids everything that they ever wanted, that's not good for them. Now, as parents, we have a pretty good idea as to what, their ultimate good would be. We have an idea as to uh, what needs to happen for them to secure their ultimate good. I know that it's probably for their good that I don't let them take a fork to an electrical outlet. It's probably a good idea not to let them do that, to not let them play in the street. Now, there are exceptions. There are some. They're, they're, we're not perfect. A lot of parents do make mistakes. However, uh, how. However, for the most part, in spite of ourselves, we, we do a pretty good job. Most of our kids turn out all right. So imagine with me how much better God is at securing good for his children. Because that's what he's promising. That the, there, there is an ultimate good for his kids. And, and God not only corrects us when we need it, he's sovereign over our circumstances. And that's something that no human parent can boast so God is actually not just good, he's very good at securing good for his children. But again, we come to the question, what is that ultimate good? Verse 29 is kind of the key to this whole text, and it's going to give us that answer. But before we get there, Paul begins this this, uh, this chain that kind of gives us an idea as to what the Christian life looks like. A lot of theologians call this the, the, the unbreakable chain of redemption or the chain of hope or the chain of salvation. Whatever you want to call it, it displays how God intimately is involved in the lives of his people far before they're ever born all the way into eternity. In verse 29 it begins with, for those whom he foreknew and when, when, when we say foreknew, that, that, that means those whom God has always known. And, and don't confuse this with God has always known about you. Well, yeah, God knows about everyone. But God has always known you as you would know a friend. God has loved you since before the foundations of the world. And this communicates God's eternal love that he has for his people. So those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Now don't freak out about the word predestined. Everybody gets all upset and bent out of shape about the word predestined. It just means to determine beforehand. Do you know what th- that means? That God has given your life meaning. He's determined that you have a purpose, that your life is more than just a vapor. And, and, and we, we learn what that purpose is We we learn what this ultimate good is because those whom God foreknew, those whom he loved, he predestined. He gave them a destiny. And we read it right here in verse 29. To be conformed into the image of his son. And there is nothing greater for any human being to want to aspire to than to be like Jesus. And I understand that for many people, that does not meet your expectation. It doesn't. Because our, our minds are so finite. Our minds don't think in terms of eternity. We think about now, right here, what we want. But our ultimate good, the very best for us, is to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. Now that term, the, the, the word image of his son, that is Genesis language. So I want to go back to Genesis chapter one and talk a little bit about what it means to be made in God's image. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he made man male and female, he made man in his image. What does that even mean? It's actually quite simple. It's when God looked, God made us in his, in his image, so that when he looks at us, we will perfectly reflect him, his glory. And we will reveal that glory to creation, so when God looks at us, he can see his reflection looking back at us. We're kind of like a mirror. And prior to the fall, that wasn't tainted. God, could, God would look and say, "This is, these are my children. They are made in my image, and it's perfect, and it's beautiful. But then Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned and brought sin into the world, that image grew distorted. That mirror that we were cracked. But then God made a promise. God promised Adam and Eve that through the seed of the woman, a man would rise up to defeat that dragon, that serpent of old. And elsewhere in the scriptures it talks about this this person redeeming creation, calling them back to God to restore us to that Perfect image bearing status because right now that image is distorted by the sin that we have. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says this He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is he speaking? Who, who, Who are these texts about? It's about Jesus. Jesus is that Jesus perfectly imitates the image and reflects the image, the radiance of God's glory. And now that we've been tainted, we are trying to get back to that perfect image-bearing status. And get this, we, are, our destiny, what God has predestined for us, is to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we can return to that image-bearing status. Are you following me? Does that make sense? Silence. You're following me? It makes sense? All right, good. Because I'll be honest with you, as I was looking through this and I was reading through it, it's like this, this all fits together, but it's, it's kind of hard to grasp because this, is, this goes through the entire Bible. But this is the beauty of it. We, this has always been God's plan. None of this stuff catches God by surprise. The greatest good for any human being, the greatest good for anyone, anything we could ever think of, is to be like Jesus. That's what God is ultimately securing for his people. And and again, as I mentioned before, that doesn't always meet our expectations. It just, it just doesn't. And God's ultimate good for his people goes far beyond our materialistic thinking, and it even goes further than the good things that we want. Because there are good things that we want. But if God is not giving them to us, then it's not for our good. It's not our best and that's a hard thing to swallow isn't it if there's something that you're deeply passionate about and god and god's not given that to you that's a hard and, and knowing that that's not god's best for you that's a hard thing to swallow especially if it's a good thing i mean it's pretty easy to call out the things that are bad in our lives We're like well i know i shouldn't steal stuff but the good things that we want If it's not for us, it's not for our best. And that may cause many of you to be angry or or bitter or even resent God at times. I mean, I think we've all been there. Moments where we feel angry and bitter towards God. But something that I learned and something that I believe this text teaches is that if If we get so angry and bitter towards God, then that means because we are not receiving something that we want, we have created an idol. And we are not treasuring Christ above all else. And that idol is something that we bow down to. And if you truly are bitter and angry about things, you're probably sacrificing things to that idol. If you're really angry about stuff, how many relationships are you sacrificing to that idol? How many, is it your spouse or your kids? Is it your job? What are you sacrificing at the feet of the idol that you created? And I, If that's you tonight, I, I urge you to come to Jesus and repent. That's a hard, hard truth to swallow. It was hard for me. Going through this, I'm thinking, man, there's, there, there are things in my life that I hold up here when it's I'm forgetting that Jesus is my, should be my ultimate supreme priority. And I'm thinking about all these other things. It is time to lay down that idol and destroy it. So let's repent of that. Now God uses, as, as he secures our good, God uses wicked and evil circumstances to create that good. And I heard somebody say recently, and I, I thought this was amazing. See, if, if, you ta- if, good, if good and evil were people, right? Good is all the beauty and the wonder and the happiness and the joy. That, that characterizes good. And then the evil, it's, it, it's arbitrary, it's secondary, it, it's, it's parasitic, it's all these evil things. And God is so sovereign over that that He looks at evil and says, and you will serve good. Because God works all things together. For good. And there are numerous illustrations in the Bible that teach this, but I'm going to look at two. The one I think is one of the most obvious how God works all things together for good, even the bad stuff. And this story is found in, Gen- in the last part of the book of Genesis. It covers the last several chapters of Genesis. And it's about a guy named Joseph. You guys all know who Joseph in The Coat of Many Colors? Everybody knows who that guy is? Yeah. So, Joseph is the great grandson of Abraham. His father is Jacob, who will later be called Israel. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel, the name for the nation state of Israel. And he's got one little brother, an older half sister, and 10 older half brothers. And and Jacob, Joseph's father, loves him. He loves him more than anybody else in the family. And instead of keeping that to himself, he decides you know what? I want to make sure that everybody knows that he's my favorite. So he buys him this beautifully designed coat and lets lets Joseph wear it. Drives a wedge between him and his brothers. And then one day, Joseph wakes up and he's got these two dreams that he's really excited about. And just to drive the wedge home, he tells his brothers all about him. And they indicate that one day his brothers will bow down before him. They got real excited and happy about that, I'm sure. So excited that they decided, well, I think it's time to go ahead and just kill Joseph. And so they took him, prepared to kill him, and then they were like, well, no, let's not do that. Let's be a little bit moral than killing him. Let's just throw him into this empty well and and leave him for dead. (coughs) Excuse me. But then after a little bit, they decided, you know, we could probably make some money off of this guy. So they pull him up out of the well and they sell him into slavery. Now, if you're Joseph, how do you think you'd be feeling right now? My brothers just tried to kill me. They left me overnight in an empty well. What's going through his mind? They sold him into slavery, and then he winds up in Egypt, sold to an Egyptian uh, official named Potiphar. Now, while serving Potiphar, Joseph was very obedient. He was gracious. He actually had a really great reputation with Potiphar, so Potiphar promoted him, made him head of his household. But one day, Potiphar's wife thought Joseph to be very attractive, and so she attempted to seduce him. And Joseph, being the devout follower of God that he is, said, I I will not sin against God. And so she framed him for rape, and he got thrown in prison. Again, Joseph has been, his life has been in danger by his own blood, flesh and blood. He's been thrown in a well, He's been sold into slavery, and now he's going for prison for something he didn't do. Do you think that you might be asking, God, don't you love me? What did I ever do to deserve this? Some years go by as Joseph's in prison, and two servants of Pharaoh are thrown in jail. And one night, these two servants have dreams of their own. And they tell Joseph about these dreams, and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams, and these dreams come true. And Joseph tells the one servant who goes back to work for Pharaoh, hey, put in a good word for me. So the servant goes back to work for Pharaoh and forgets all about Joseph. Man, this guy just cannot get a break. Forgets all about Joseph, and Joseph stays in prison a little bit longer. But again, people like him because he's a man of integrity. So his jailer put him in charge of the jail while he was in jail. I don't know how that works, but that's pretty impressive. And then, one night, Pharaoh has a few disturbing dreams of his own. And so he's looking all, over, looking all over Egypt for somebody who can interpret these dreams. And the servant remembers, oh yeah, that guy. That guy in jail. So he tells Pharaoh about him. Pharaoh summons Joseph. Joseph enters the court of Pharaoh. Hears Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's dreams are apocalyptic in nature. <coughs> They're basically saying... Uh, they basically say there's going to be seven years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And then Joseph, in, uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh, hey, you should probably put a guy in charge of your economic policy so that Egypt doesn't go under. And Pharaoh's like, you know, that's a great idea. How about you do it? And he makes Joseph number two in all of Egypt. He's the second in command over all of Egypt. And Joseph rescues The Egyptian economy. And they prosper so much in the time of famine that people from all over the Middle East come to buy food in Egypt, including men from Canaan. That includes includes those brothers of Joseph that sold them into slavery. His brothers come to Egypt. Joseph recognizes them right away. His brothers don't recognize him. They probably think he's dead by now. And Joseph, long story short, kind of messes with his brothers for a little bit, but then he reveals... reveals himself to his brothers. He forgives his brothers. His brothers do bow to him, by the way. And then Joseph invites his entire family to come live in Egypt so that he can take care of them. And then Joseph, while in Egypt, Joseph's father passes away. And after his father dies, Joseph's brothers are fearful for their lives, thinking now that our father is dead, Joseph will now uh, execute his vengeance upon us. Listen to what Joseph says to his brothers, found in Genesis chapter 50 verses 19 to 20. Joseph says, "Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God made the evil of murder, of intention to kill leaving a brother for dead, selling somebody into slavery, being falsely accused. He took all of those evil things and told evil to serve good. Only God can do something like that. Do you think God can secure your good? God is a good God. He's a sovereign God, and he controls these things. And Joseph understood that it was not his place to question God, on how he got to where he was or what happened to him, he could see that God had orchestrated all of history for this point to rescue his family. By the way, rescuing Jacob's family kind of also secured the line of Jesus because one of Jacob's ancestors would be Mary, the mother of Jesus. God's working something to work things out for good for his people even when we can't see those things. Now, that's probably the most obvious example in the uh, the Bible. You might think, yeah, we know the story of Joseph. And a lot of us actually probably think to ourselves, yeah, but it all worked out in the end. But you have to remember, there were years and years and years of suffering for Joseph before he ever saw the outcome of what would take place. But he had faith. He had faith. I'm sure he had low points. I'm sure he did. He did. But throughout all that, you could see that no matter what, he was still blessed. Why? Because he trusted God in every situation and circumstance, no matter how bad it got. So, if so, I I want to tell you my second example, and I think this is the best one. If I were to ask you what is the most wicked, heinous, evil thing to ever happen in all of history, what would you say? I'm sure a lot of people would say, "Well, the Holocaust." What about 9-11? What about the genocides over centuries and centuries of war? How about the murder of God's Son? Listen to what Peter says to the men of Israel in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Peter stands up and speaks to Israel and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was God's definitive plan all along. To crush his son so that many people may remain alive as they are today. How did Jesus respond to that call on his life? This was God's plan for his life. His plan was to come to earth and die. That's what he was meant to do. Jesus was captured, mocked, tortured, and crucified. The perfect, holy, spotless lamb of God who never did anything wrong in his life suffered a traitor's and murder a traitor's death. How did Jesus respond to this call? Well, we know in Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's pouring his heart out to his Father. And he says, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was able to find joy in his crucifixion. Now, I'm sure Jesus was not feeling joy in the act of being crucified, but he was finding joy that was set before him. He, he knew what his crucifixion was accomplishing. It was accomplishing the atonement for his people, for his bride. He was buying his people back to reconcile them to God so that that image-bearing status can be restored. And we are called to imitate Christ, to suffer like Christ suffered. Philippians, did I say suffered? Suffered. Suffered. Philippians chapter two, verses five to eight says this, have this mind, this is the mind you should have among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. For us, that means that stop trying to be God in your life. Stop grasping at what, stop trying to be equal with God. Say, God, I don't like what you're trying to tell me to do. He's God, trust him, let him do his thing. He's better at it than you are. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We imitate Christ. We have the mind of Christ, and we respond to our suffering the same way that Christ did. We humble ourselves before God, and we submit to his will. Now, we just making sure that you're tracking along with me. The reason we're talking about suffering is because suffering is kind of the incubator where we become conformed into the image of Christ. You know if you, if you're, does anybody whittle? Anybody here whittle? Anybody? Nobody whittles? Okay. If you're carving something out of a block of wood, it takes sanding. It takes polishing. It takes chiseling. You're taking pieces and chunks out, I'm sure. And if we are being formed in the image of God, those things are happening to us. We're being sanded sanded down. We're being polished. There's some chisel work that needs to be done. And that is painful. But that is how we become conformed to the image of God. And that is is the, on the image of Christ, and that is the ultimate good that God has for us. Now, it is impossible for us to become like Christ on our own. We, we, we can't just think, you know what, today I want to be like Christ. Then we just kind of start chiseling away at ourselves. We have a skewed view of what the image of Christ is, so God begins to do that work in us. And if you'll recall, so, so far um, we've seen that God foreknows We saw that God predestined, and if you'll notice, he is the one initiating. He foreknew, those he foreknew, he predestined, and that all happens in eternity past, but now we're going to move to the present. Those whom he predestined, he also called. This is the gospel call on the life of the believer. And for each of us, that, that, that moment of conversion is a little bit different. Some of us remember those moments. Some of us don't, but it's when that calling takes place. You see, the Bible tells us that the, when the that the sheep of Jesus know His voice, so when Jesus sends out that gospel call, saying, "I've got good news. I'm here to rescue you, to save you. Repent and believe the gospel." His sheep will hear His voice and come running. Who's the mouthpiece that Jesus uses? Who is His bullhorn? It's his church. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How will they hear if they don't have a preacher? How will they have a preacher if he is not sent? We go out and we proclaim to all, of the, to all of creation the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the effectual call on the believer. And we know that it's an effectual call, that it works, that something actually happens and takes place because of what, it, what comes next in the link. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom God predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. If God calls you, he will justify you. Now, I, I talked about justification a bit more length a couple of weeks ago. But just, and I don't have a lot of time to go through all of that. It's a, that's a big piece. But just know this. When you are justified, it is God declaring you righteous. Because of what Jesus has done. Not because of anything that you've done. You've done nothing but contribute to your need to be declared righteous. But God declares us righteous because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins. We are given the righteousness of Christ. And we stand, before, uh, we stand in the courtroom justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I find it very interesting that Paul says glorified kind of in the past tense. If you'll notice, everything, you, you've got the stuff in the eternity past, for God foreknew you and he predestined you, and you've got the stuff in the present where he's called you and he's justified you, and now we've got this, and he's, those, whom he's, those whom he has justified, he has also glorified. If you look around, do you feel as though you've been glorified? Well, What is glorification? What does that mean for the believer? Glorification is is when you receive, is when Jesus comes back and you receive that new body, that new physical body. It's when the tears will be wiped away from your eyes. It's when you're not going to have that pain or turmoil anymore. It's when Jesus comes back and you'll be in his presence forever. Ultimately, it is you being restored to your perfect image-bearing status. And only God can do that. It is all of grace. It is God working in the life of the sinner. He has foreknown you. He has predestined you. He has called you. He's justified you. And he promises to glorify you. And the reason that it's in the past tense is because it is the inevitable result of anyone who's been foreknown, for, loved by God. It's that certain. Do you remember at the very beginning? And we know These are things that we can know for sure. So take courage, Christian. If that suffering, that illness, that that pain, that agony that you experience in this life, whatever that looks like, none of that stuff is going to be in vain. God has given you a meaning and a purpose, and it's to look like Jesus. It is to... It is to live like Jesus. It is to eat and drink like Jesus. It is to suffer like Jesus. This is the greatest good for anyone, any human being. That brings me to my last observation. But before I do, I just want to read this one verse. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a promise. Everything he started, he will finish. Observation number two then. So we, we, we've, we've observed that there's an ultimate good in store for God's people to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And this is undergirded. This is kind of, it's motivated by what God's ultimate purpose is. And that ultimate, and, and because there is an ultimate purpose that God will accomplish... In verse 28, we see that it ends with those who are called according to God's purpose. So what is God's ultimate purpose? What what does he have in store? What is the undergird of everything that he's doing? Well, it's found in verse 29. Like I said, 29 is kind of the key to this whole thing. It's already revealed to us what the ultimate good is. But it also reveals to us what the ultimate purpose that God has. Verse 29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that so that therefore here's the reason that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is the ultimate purpose that God will accomplish to make Jesus first? That title firstborn it's 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 the it's that place of honor. It's that number one seat. If you're sitting at a dinner table, it's the one at the head of the table. And this is God's ultimate purpose to elevate Jesus to the highest position. To make him supreme over all things. And and, and this... That's why our ultimate good is to be like Jesus, because that in and of itself elevates Jesus to that in our life, because he is what we want to be. We want to be like him. We want to imitate him. We want to live like him. We want to love and evangelize like him. Therefore, here's your one application point God's ultimate good for his people is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, and his ultimate purpose is. Is that Jesus would be made first, therefore it is your duty, as one called according to God's purpose, to recognize Jesus as Lord over every desire and detail of your life. Do, is Jesus preeminent in every area and detail of your life? Or, are there, or do we need to go back to those idols that we need to address and tear down? In times of plenty, do you worship Jesus as Lord? In times of want, do you worship Jesus as Lord? In times of suffering, confusion, I mean, we are in days of confusion. Do you worship Jesus as Lord? You glorify God, you glorify Jesus in every area of your life, even those messy parts that you don't think he really cares about. Everything. Your marriage, your kids, that sin, that, that, just that gravel in your shoe. You need to give that to Jesus and glorify him for taking it away. <laughs> if that is God's aim, to make Jesus first in all things, not us, not our own desires, not our own passions, not our own interests, but the glorification of Jesus Christ, then it should be our aim. I mean, how often do we pray? This, how often do our prayers sound like this? My kingdom come, my will be done. God, give me what I want. Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be our default. Why? Why? Because that was Jesus' default. He glorified the Father. And just as he glorified the Father, we should glorify Jesus. I'm going to close with with a series of texts. And I don't remember if I had them put this on the screen or not. But I'm going to mash them all together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. I think that they speak directly to the preeminence of Christ. And every time I read through these, I read through them a couple times today. I can't help it. I have to say amen at the end. So I'm going to say it again today because it's amazing who and what Jesus is. And he thought about us. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross. And again, when he, when he, that is God, brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you... Will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your, a footstool for you? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. If you're here tonight and you don't know, the Lord Jesus. If, if, if you haven't experienced that calling on your life, don't leave tonight without coming to the Lord Jesus, repenting of your sin, and believing in him. Believe the gospel. He is faithful to save. He is mighty to save. He loves to save. And if you're here tonight, and you are a Christian, let me encourage you with this. May you strive to be more like Christ, knowing that it is your ultimate good to be like him. And may we always recognize Jesus as sovereign and supreme Lord over every detail of our lives. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.